Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, listeners. My name is Mary Pippi, and today I'm here to talk to you about my new podcast called The Nanny Reviews. Every other Friday, I sit down and relax with a glass of wine and watch a movie about nannies. You know, being a nanny can be a very lonely job, and my hope is to create a community of other nannies like myself. So grab a glass of wine and join me February 5th for the Nanny Reviews. For clues about which movies I will be talking about in each episode, check out the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at the Nanny Reviews on Facebook, The Nanny Reviews with Mary to Pippi. And you can also email me at thenannyreviews at gmail.com. lot of your programming has been around like what do you make of Whitman in a racial and social justice context and how can you go back and forth and critique and does that mean you're taking away the author's preserving are you preserving the author in a different way and I'm always curious like how do you see that question Caitlin For me personally, I don't want to speak on behalf of the whole birthplace, but for me personally, it's really important to pose these questions about Whitman and give everyone a wealth of information that they can look at, Um, but not necessarily answer any of these questions. I don't think there is a direct answer. And the thing with Whitman is he's the poet of democracy. That means a lot of equality. And when you read some of these poems, I know that I'm coming from a place where I read them you know, within the past two, three years more closely because of my job. Mm. But, you know, you're reading them thinking he means everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Well, and that, 
that's the that's the common trope of the 18th and 19th centuries, right? I remember so clearly where I was sitting in college when I first read the essay on liberty by John Stuart Mill, and like the mm. just about the first paragraph, he says, "By the way, um, what is it? Races still in their nunnage, right? In their childhood, so child races, right? Which I assume means Asian and African and." uh first american and so on like it's don't deserve liberty because they couldn't handle it the way children don't deserve liberty because they couldn't handle it and i was like this is not a great start to your essay john yeah. stewart like what are you doing yeah. well it's kind of like and it's so it's so sad it's kind of like if anyone's ever read um ben franklin's autobiography which i think is a fascinating read um and i I've don't always it, but i don't remember i mean i've read a lot for well my oral exams i've read a lot of 18th century american literature but it's not something usually people talk about in exciting weekend reads <laughs> like yeah let's all read alexander hamilton's essays but <laughs> i am saying it is very interesting to make the point of, well now it nowadays now that they've read the, they've seen the musical everybody mm, wants to read the reynolds paper now I don't know if people are actually reading the primaries. Everybody go out and read the Reynolds pamphlet. It's, it's, <laughs> okay, read. it's tabloid gold. <laughs> I, I did this. I saw the musical and then I read the Reynolds pamphlet. The Reynolds pamphlet is almost better than the musical. Mm. Sorry, you were saying, and then yeah. I interrupted. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it reminds me of like what you're saying, Caitlin. I think exactly. There's this thinking of what the poet of, the de of democracy means and um a lot of conversations i've had over the past year and continuing and i think they need to continue is even if we go back to and we need to right the founding of america and that um foundational narrative story go anyone who goes to the museum of the american revolution in philly they've done such a nice job of presenting what the native american culture was during the founding of America, how they were being driven from their homeland, the treaties were being broken. Um, they were trying to urge the father, well, I don't always like to use founding fathers, but in this case I will. They were urging the founding fathers in Independence Hall to like at least recognize their tribes and they were being turned down. Women, including Abigail Adams, especially Abigail Adams, was insistent that women needed to be in the constitution and she was extremely angry when they were not especially with her husband who was you know one of those signatories um and i think it just it shows you more of oh democracy from the get-go in america was soured like our sour milk has been in the fridge for a very long time and you know the slave trade starting in the 1600s, um, you know, not everyone wasn't free at all to begin with. So, you know, when I have my students read Whitman or even like we're having this conversation now, democracy was is flawed from the beginning. Yeah. And I think that that helps though to understand, oh, we're dealing with a writer in a circumstance where he is um, absorbing a lot of um, racist sentiments, especially 
um, he has this very Charles Darwin inferior idea about black intelligence, mm -hmm. which he talks about in his journalism. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important to read, I have my students read some of that writing to talk about how we can critique an author and why that's so productive to, to bring in other authors. And I think it doesn't mean that you're saying don't read an author. You're not, right, I'm not, we're not hosting a bonfire party. Um, but again, and I think, I do think that's, it's so important that it's expanding this way. Um, yeah. yeah, sorry, I took so much time going into my- <laughs> No, but you have to- It's, it's very important. Yeah. And I think it, it has to come from someone like you, somebody who's who's dedicated, like your love of Whitman can't be gainsaid. Mm -hmm. But and yet there are certainly people who would much who would prefer rosier brushstrokes, mm -hmm. and that I think leads to not just prefer, but like they feel sort of threatened and offended by uh, the the holistic image of Whitman that you're trying to paint, and that I think leads to a sort of more difficult and really darker question, Caitlin, as the proprietor of a an institution that has to um, stay afloat financially. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you deal with the fact that the people who are coming to your museum are people who love Whitman, and you have a, a duty to the people who suffered throughout history to tell them the truth about Whitman and the times he lived in and to ruin their Sunday? In, in <laughs> okay, right. I'm exaggerating, but 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 how do you do that? This is a conversation that we have, I'd say almost weekly, if not bi-weekly, about how we're representing Whitman and how, how out of the box can we go as a museum? I mean, we're, we're open for the community. We want to educate them. We want to give them a narrative that's true and real, but we also don't want to go so offensive or go, you know, strictly focusing on these sorts of details where you walk away with only, you know, negative viewpoints of Whitman because he's a whole person. Mm -hmm. He lived a whole life. I wouldn't say that, that he necessarily kept all of his views throughout his life either. He's a growing, changing person as you read through all of these documents he wrote. Um, so it's really important to put him into context, to put the time into context. I think that's essential. You, it's hard to imagine Civil War America. Um, what did that look like? What did that feel like? How could you speak? If you went south, could you speak the same way that you could speak in the north? Absolutely not. So things like that come up all the time. You know, how do we put this in context? Um, we're talking a lot about making actually very specific tours. Uh, there'd be a tour that you could take if you were interested in Whitman and slavery um, and learning more about that time period. You could take a tour about Whitman's sexuality, which is another example of, you know, Whitman, he's not telling you exactly, you know, where he lands on the spectrum necessarily, um, but there's a lot of homoerotic, you know, connotations in a lot of his mm -hmm. poetry. And so I think you really have to, you oh, know, sorry. And I was you can't say, tell I, a person. Yeah. yeah and I was just going to say, Caitlin, I think his erotic, my students, they're always so intrigued by how he presents romance and sexuality and desire. And I think that's where he shines. In my opinion, I see Whitman more as a, a poet of love, like love's language. So that's why when it comes to the question of democracy, I think 
if you start to bring it up, you have to be ready for mm-hmm. debates, right? Um, yeah. And especially now, because we're living under we're living under a shifting understanding of what democracy means and how people are faring in a pandemic. And a lot of that has to do with race. It has to do with social class, access to medical care. Um, But yeah, I, I like Adam, how you phrase that I'm very close to this subject and it's true. I'm very close to Whitman, but I'm not Whitman's apologist. And I don't think any scholar should be an apologist. Like there are so many Shakespeare scholars I know who, you know, call out certain um, issues around Shakespeare's biography. And I think that's what you do as a reliable uh, scholar, Mm -hmm. um, right? Like our job isn't to revise history. And I also, when you talk about the Civil War, Caitlin, I'm so glad you brought that up because for me, that's where it is such so interesting when Whitman, and I think it speaks a lot to what's happening right now. In terms of before we even started this, I was talking with Caitlin about mourning, and a lot of my students are focusing on the theme of grief mm-hmm. in a lot of texts that we've read. And um, yeah, I would think extend- that would resonate with them this year. Yeah, and it extends. We're missing out on a lot, right? It's true, and it's a place for us to gather and talk about this in a scholarly way, but I brought it into the woods. I have some of them writing about um, Whitman's drum taps with Into the Woods. Um, And if you've never seen Into the Woods, please watch it. (laughs) The Broadway version, I mean. Not the Disney version, it's a- Well, you could do it as a comparative project, but I would say- Save yourselves the time. (laughs) Okay, I'm not gonna get into that debate. But um, <laughs> but I do think he was a nurse that mm-hmm. was helping Confederate and Union soldiers um, okay. and because really, the hospital, yeah, the hospital had both soldiers present. Right, and really looking at them equally as people who are serving their country, but on very different sides, which is... Yeah. I think a very bold look. Yeah, for that and that's where period. I see his boldness. I don't see it in, you know, I, in my writing, I don't come out with, like, I don't come out with my claims about Whitman, my personal mm-hmm. investment in terms of, I don't say Whitman is this or Whitman is that, right? My, mm-hmm. I'm telling a narrative journey about Whitman um, and how he arrives to meet Oscar Wilde, like how his his homoerotic poetic journey, so to speak. But yeah, if I had to explain the bonus, I agree, Caitlin. I think it's in what he does with the soldiers. Um, and I think right now, when our country is so divided, um, just over wearing PPA, um, you know, and treating people with empathy, like, I, I really do think this is a divide over empathy right now. Um, right. And Whitman has a lot of empathy. He has a lot, yes. And it comes in the Civil War. And I do think there is a turning point with Whitman after the Civil War. Um, well, I can't imagine what he saw yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he saw very gory scenes. All right. Um, I mean, I'm not going to try to now, if someone's eating and they're trying to enjoy their meal, I'm not going to get into it. Too much. No, but you can read a lot of that in his memoranda during the war. 
text, which is really um, right. well done. But then right after that, he writes Democratic Vistas. And it's mm -hmm. actually interesting. He doesn't write his text, his polemic on democracy mm -hmm. in the 1850s or when he's younger. He writes it in the 1870s. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really interesting text because a lot of it is him questioning the government. He always questioned the government. Um, he didn't take sides. He's, yeah. he's not an abolitionist. He never, he never claimed to be certain categories. Right. Um, right. If anything, Whitman is outside categories. But that's absolutely a deliberate choice. Oh, yes. And Very deliberate. Absolutely deliberate. Um, the other thing I want to add is also, I think that Whitman, especially because of his sexuality, because of, you mm -hmm. know, the way he's approaching the world is very much an outsider in yes. every situation that he's in. For example, he's, you know, not a soldier, but he's mm -hmm. there writing letters home for soldiers. Yeah, but know? his brother's a soldier. Right. Which is why right. he goes there in the first place. Right, to look for his brother in all these makeshift tent hospitals. He's searching for his injured brother yeah. that he and his mother had just read was injured in the newspaper of all places. Mm -hmm. And so Whitman's going through all these tents and of course that empathy comes across to him and he has to do something. He has to be a part of it. And I think if that had not happened to him, would he necessarily be into politics? It's hard to say. I think I read somewhere that he wanted to be an, um, an orator more mm -hmm. than a poet. So mm -hmm. I could see yeah, him yeah, overlapping with politics in some way in his life, sort of wanting to be part of that scene. Actually, I remember reading uh, from Allen Ginsberg that one of the one of his very um, the way he reads Whitman is that every line of a given poem he uh, he equates to one breath mm. and so some of the lines are incredibly long mm. and so he but oh, he'll yeah. he'll he'll take that he'll he'll you know he'll fill his lungs mm -hmm. and do it because that's how he that's what he thinks Whitman's lines are <laughs> is he thinks that they're breaths yeah, I think song that, of I think myself you're gonna pass out well, yeah. <laughs> he he had a powerful set of lungs. Yeah. It's it's well, maybe not for everybody. You must you must be at least this athletic to read Whitman, like like a roller coaster park. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I I think the idea of I think the idea of defying category is nice up to a point. It's it sounds like we have such a stark view of that era, right? Mm -hmm. um, where we see like people on one side of a war as abolitionists and people on the other side of the war as anti-abolitionists. And it wasn't like that at all. Very much not. Not on Long Island. History. Long Island, there was so many mm -hmm. Confederate sympathizers. Yeah. There still are. Um, but <laughs> that's, another, that's another issue. But the right. thing is, yeah, and Adam and I have actually talked about this, but a lot... Once you go into the grayness, you realize that history is gray, and right. well, so it's that there is no binary. Oh wait, well, there's no binary this side right. or that side usually, and that's disappointing it, to us. We want Whitman to have been a hero, mm -hmm. right? Because up in a bow, or I mean, for for those of us, and I'm and I'm counting myself in this number. For those of us who read Whitman at a formative age and fell in love with his poetry, even if my scholarship went in a different direction. Like I want Whitman um, to be able to empathize with people of color to the same extent that he's able to empathize with uh, 
other white people. And it's just not. No, but he is on the lecture circuit, which I'm glad, Caitlin, you brought up the or the um, orator aspect, because a lot of that gets lost usually, which is, um, well, first, he would attend so many lectures of philosophy with his father um, when he was growing up in Brooklyn. But, oh, and he would go to Tammany Hall. That was a popular place for lectures at the time. Um, and then eventually it would be the Cooper Union building um, in Union Square. Um, but what was I going to say? Oh, I know where this is heading. So he actually eventually, at the end of his life, started to do more lectures in the seven, 1870s, 1880s in New York City, uh, Philadelphia, South Jersey, um, on Abraham Lincoln, um, and on a lot of the history of America from, but I have to say, from this founding father narrative side at this and I think it's important, Adam, that you mention though, like categories serve, there's a purpose to them, but a lot of it also is a wish fulfillment from readers wanting, especially American readers, wanting this kind of great American poet figure, which doesn't exist with any of the poets. I mean, I would argue, I don't think you can ever have a um, a flawless writer in terms of their politics, their social situation. You're going to find something that you can critique, but again, you're going to find something with me that you're going to find um, unsavory, probably, if you start digging. And right. um, again, but isn't that the human condition? Right. And even Lincoln, I mean, we think of him as the hero figure of the Civil War. He only had good intentions, you know, but, and then you look at women, you say he liked Lincoln, he loved Lincoln so much that you could almost try to just end the story there and say, well, he thought what Lincoln thought and that's it. But that's not the case at yeah, all. Yeah, and then you, right, start digging and you realize, oh, he believed in ending slavery Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, Caitlin, from other conversations you've had, but he believed, I think Whitman believed in ending, from what I've read, he definitely wanted slavery to end mm -hmm. once the Civil War was happening. Right. Before that, he's pretty ambiguous. Yeah, um, I think most people are pretty ambiguous. Yes, yes. Unless you're ambiguous. a um, Sojourner Truth or Frederick Douglass or... Lydia Maria Child is a really interesting figure who actually, she's the one who sponsored Harriet Jacobs to write her narrative because oh. Harriet Jacobs needed a white woman to help her write a narrative. Not did help she write her write. It or did she dictate No, 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 not help her write, I'm sorry. Who helped her get it published. She was her sponsor for the publishing. Um, but no, she Harriet dictated Jacobs, her narrative, didn't she? I don't think she dictated I, it. I, I, I remember reading that- I think that's that Sojourner Truth. Douglas was the only one who Actually, yeah, we'll have to do all. some digging, um, but um, look, look in the notes for clarification. People. Yes, and everyone, <laughs> this is now your time to try and pause this and find the research for that. But Phyllis Wheatley, the first um, black female poet, um, she actually needed to go in front of a trial of white men to prove that she was literate. Mm. Again, but these are the story. These are these are the facts we need to know. 
I think, mm-hmm. and they need to be talked about. Um, and that's why I bring up Whitman because as much as it makes, and I'll say it makes a lot of white readers uncomfortable. Um, and I think, especially with my student demographic, there have been different types of ways that students usually read Whitman. It's not always about their racial identity, but a lot of the times there is, you know, I noticed that this wanting to see Whitman as a hero comes from a white perspective. Um, I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, and it might seem controversial. Important, no, it's an important distinction to make. Yeah. Um, I, oh, wait, I, wait, 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 wait. Sorry, sorry. So one second. The, um, his belief, though, was that after slavery, after slavery ended, and he wasn't the only one, Whitman. This was a whole, I forget what the actual theory is called. And Caitlin probably knows where I'm going with this. But he wanted, he thought that it would actually be better if freed Black people went to a different country or went back to Africa. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was that was a Lincoln also believed that way. Yeah, Lincoln believed it too. Uh, Repatriation. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. But there's also a need for more jobs at the time, so it becomes also if you free up all these positions by not having slaves, it's more expensive for these big um, landowners because they now have to pay people. But it's also boosting the economy. Yeah, Uh, this is capitalism. This is the heart of capitalism with the slave trade. Yeah, well, well, so the Republican Party of that time, the 1850s, when they first started and they and they almost immediately won the presidency, they were not saying we need to free black people because the poor black people, we love them. They were saying we need to free black people because they're undercutting white labor. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so all of these, and, and that was, that was, Lincoln was a party line guy at the time. So all of these, all of these people who talk about the party of Lincoln, if you actually knew what Lincoln said, you might not, you might not be hanging your hat quite so securely on that peg because it's not a, yeah. it's, it's not a great party platform with a, with 170 years of hindsight. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't hold up at all. Mm-hmm. And that's where context is just so key. Like, it is. And knowing who the abolitionist, that there's also a range. Um, there's a really great book. I'll, I'll link it. Link it. Link it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Saturday. You had, you had We're doing to. this on a Saturday. This is a Saturday <laughs> pun. Uh, but um, A History of Abolitionism. And it was I'm just published. Make it out of this alive. Yeah, we will. But it was just published and it's... Again, I think we need to know more of these. There's a really great book on um, indigenous people of America and that we have to start, we have to start talking about this history. And even when I gave a tour and I know Caitlin remembers probably this moment, but there's a plaque in the West Hills area where Whitman's family lived and the houses still exist um, of his ancestors where it says, I'm gonna misquote it probably, but something like the fort erected to protect um, the English settlers from the Indians. And I'm like, wait, protected? You mean that they were not having, they were invading the Native American land and mm-hmm. they weren't talking about treaties. That's right. Right. that's the context here. Yes, who's um, telling this story? Yes. Makes yes. A big difference. And that's so important even when you read Whitman. I always think, who is the speaker? And a lot of the times the speaker is very unclear. And a lot of times people say Whitman. I, and I've corrected 
my students a lot and they'll say, and Whitman writes. And I say to them, no, Whitman does not write this. He seduces you into thinking it's him, but no, this is a poetic creation. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that's where Whitman is so unique as a poet that he always inserts his autobiography to trick you into always linking his name with the speaker. Like when you read Tennyson, you don't think Mariana or the Lady of Shalott is Tennyson. Right, right. Because there's a certain <laughs> dramatic, there's a narrative poet, um, poetic wall there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and the free verse really captivates you. And I think, oh, yeah. right, we can, we can talk all about those techniques and it is revolutionary in that way. And yeah, there's so much to the story. And I think if anything, there is no one clear answer and that's okay, right? It's okay that we don't claim someone as a hero. And, right. and I think that's the issue there is also who are the people who are trying to do that? Who are the most invested? And if it's coming from those with more privilege, Houston, I think, Huntington, I think we have a problem. Right, right. <laughs> oh, I've been too punny. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, Caitlin, we didn't talk about it. And I think it's really actually, Adam knows I'm the king of the segue. I like trying to do these tricky segues. <laughs> but you started at Pratt, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Um, and can you talk about your experience arriving at Pratt? Or like, what was that? Um, what was your experience like just studying um, uh, your, was it a BFA that you studied? Okay. Yeah. yeah, so what was that experience like? Well, I went to three schools, which is a very unusual journey um, to get my BFA. Um, well, the decision to go to art school is a big one, I'd say, um, an unusual one. Um, I think there's a lot of, stereotypes that artists just have fun all day at school and don't uh, necessarily do much work. It's just sort of experimenting and it's a very structured program. I've been to three schools. I can tell you every school is very structured, um, challenging programs wherever you go. Um, I started at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn uh, in 2004. That was my first uh, freshman year. And at that time, like we can now look back at that time and say that was a really challenging um, time for the, that for the school itself. It was, um, I remember, you know, I really got a lot out of, especially um, drawing classes. I fell in love with drawing at Pratt. They're very foundationally based, like that skill base. You know, how fast can you draw something? You know, repetition. Mm. Um, can you move something to a different angle and get it? How quick can you get the gesture of a person? How few lines can you get that gesture in quick? Um, so I love that. But I can also remember, you know, it's an expensive school. At that time, it was 40000 per year. and That's 2004. Yeah, that's wow. 2004. And sitting in a studio, and there were leaks in the ceiling, and mm. my homework got completely drenched. Um, <laughs> um, also, Brooklyn was very different then. It was a much rougher neighborhood. Uh, I've been there many times since, and I don't recognize it sometimes. I say, I think I'm lost. Oh, I'm still here. It was very different. Um, 
So I found it to be, I don't want to say, not a com complete disappointment. The professors were amazing. There's so many amazing aspects. Sort of the backbone that they give you there of how to approach art is amazing. But at the same time, everything else, they were losing um, uh, accreditation for some of their programs. There was a lot of mm -hmm. difficult stuff going on for them. So for me, it was like, this is not what I imagined it to be. I've known so many since then. At that time, I think a lot of people went to a school and they stayed there. But for me, it was like, I'm not getting everything out of this that I want. I need to move on. So um, I then moved upstate to uh, Saratoga Springs, New York, to Skidmore College. Um, that program, it's amazing. It has so much more space than, say, even Pratt can have in Brooklyn. It's a very rural area. It's beautiful campus um, to visit. And uh, I started painting big there. <laughs> so all of a sudden, it's like, you know, from having leaking water on my homework to I have my own space and I'm making these huge paintings. Um, I have to say that both these schools are massively competitive. I think that people really underestimate what it's like to be an art student if you really want to be an artist. I've also met students that are, you know, not taking it as seriously. They're not thinking about, you know, having a show in Chelsea necessarily in their future. They just sort of low level um, want to learn stuff and that's fine too. But absolutely the competition between students is uh, massive like you yeah. yeah you can't underestimate like just how much people really take it seriously on their own but then you have these critiques and during critiques basically you're asked to look at everyone's work and give like a very honest view of what you're seeing where they can improve um, it's really uncomfortable at least it was for me in the beginning but, you know, I remember sometimes at Pratt, especially, um, not everyone in the class's work gets spoken about. If you've ever seen that show, Project Runway, it's a lot yeah. like that. I mean, yes, um, ages ago. Yeah, it's a lot like that. It's like um, some of these, you know, assignments that are hanging on the wall are just not worth talking about. And if Ouch. you're like me, it's like, I want mine to be talked about today. Even if it's bad, I want it to be talked right, about. Right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I actually once heard this idea encapsulated very beautifully by a now famous science fiction writer mm -hmm. and fantasy writer named Brandon Sanderson, where he said that when he was going to school, to university, um, he had a roommate who uh, picked a kind of engineering that he thought was going to, like, he knew that he wanted to do engineering, and he picked a kind of engineering and he did it and he spent hours and hours and hours every day doing problem sets and stuff like that but the path was all laid out for him and what what brandon sanderson the fantasy author said was if you want to um if everybody in that uh group of engineers who got at least like a, whatever a certain test grade got a job at the end of it <laughs> as an engineer <laughs> at a company that paid them uh, I know it, it feels weird to be even saying something like that. Um, but whereas someone like Brandon Sanderson, the roommate who wanted to be, even back then wanted to be a writer, right? Mm -hmm. He says, you have to work approximately as hard 
as the guy who's doing problem sets 10 hours a day. Plus, you don't really have a path laid out for you like that guy does. That guy has to do this problem set on this day, that problem set on that day, hand them in, get a grade, do it over again. It's a, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a path. Plus, at the end of it, like one in 10, one in 20 gets a job mm-hmm. for which they draw something resembling a salary as a published author, as an mm-hmm. editor, mm-hmm. as a, I don't know, a literary agent. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's a little higher. Um, and certainly there are parallel fields that involve writing, like law and journalism and so on. But, but it's, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's an ongoing concern that, that people who, uh, people who um, go into engineering are defined by the like focused engineers who make it and who become engineers and people who go into a creative discipline are defined by the dilettantes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And the, it also comes down to like that competitiveness, like I was saying in school is will stay with you for the rest of your life as you continue this path. Um, and this path is not laid out for you, like you're saying. It's just sort of hope you can find something that has your day job that you don't necessarily have any training in when you graduate um, that will allow you to not starve and still buy art supplies. <laughs> That's the dream there. Um, and yeah, it's something that you continuously, you know, you take these opportunities that don't pay. That's a big part of it, like I was saying earlier. Um, and you hope a lot. Um, and I remember when I was in college, I really felt like hard work equals success, and that's the end. So if I work hard enough, I think I think everyone in my generation certainly went through that. Like, if I work hard enough, there'll be jobs. But we've learned that that's not really necessarily true. Or if I work hard enough, I'll be, you know, getting in a gallery in Chelsea. Um, I'll tell you another story that this was my, this was my disillusionment of the art world that wrapped up <laughs> um, in a nutshell. I, while I was in college, college I was, I actually, I went to Adelphi University, which I love and I want to give them a shout out to. Um, while I was going there, I did an internship at a gallery in Chelsea, very prestigious. Um, and it was overall a great experience. It was a lot of transparency into the gallery scene that I had not had before. Mm-hmm. And I started to see, you know, it doesn't mean this person's work is better or as good as someone else's work. It has a lot to do with like who will buy it. That's the bottom line here for money. But so I sat at this desk and I input um, paintings and their materials and their price and their name. Um, a lot of the time and while I sat at that desk there was a huge pile of these manila envelopes mm-hmm. all around my feet and so the whole time I'm working there I'm like I don't know what these are or why they're here so finally like towards my last day I asked someone like what are these and why do we hold on to them and put them under here they told me those are artists that submitted their portfolios by mail <laughs> and they just sit there because we feel too bad throwing them out. And about once a year, we open it and we go through. Um, and I said, have you ever given someone a show? And they said, maybe once, but it was already an artist they were familiar with through some other means. So that to me was like, you know, 
I haven't seen this side, but this side looks really sketchy and, um, you know, about money in a way that, you know, art programs are not talking about money. They're talking about, you know, revolutionizing painting. So it's kind of like how uh, humanities grad students never talk about salary. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, it doesn't matter where you're getting money from. Yeah, yeah. Well, right, and you're in a, um, right, being a professional artist, I mean, there are some, and I know you, you know, um, you must, you know, people who've opened their own studios, um, but that's not a, an easy endeavor at all. And it's a huge gamble. Um, right. But I guess the goal usually is you're going to bring, you're going to create a network, um, with other artists, you know, and, um, at the end of the day though, who's sponsoring this? Um, and it kind of reminds me of how much I love, um, the American Ballet Theater, ABT and, or even the New York City Ballet, but I'm familiar more with ABT and, Every time I look in a program, I'm always curious, and it'll say, Misty Copeland, I love, I love her uh, work, Misty Copeland sponsored by such and such family. And I'm like, wow, so this is so interesting. You as a dancer are defined by a family at the end of the day. Right. And how much money they're giving you. It's like Renaissance Italy. Exactly, it <laughs> like is, yeah. Right and that's the period Adam deals with, but it's true. This is the sponsor system. Yeah. And is it working, though, is my question. I mean, well, I would say, I would say that I, in my lifetime, since I've graduated, I've seen a major push for not just local arts, but local businesses being spotlighted a lot more. Mm -hmm. And as far as getting, you know, at least boosting your resume to a place where you can even start to think about sort of playing in that field of, you know, a bigger gallery there's a lot of arts councils which are usually funded um, by the state mm -hmm. and that's absolutely a pathway that i've found as a way of building a resume but also getting exposure making those contacts um, that you would need to make in order to sort of start boosting yourself um, and i can't tell you how many opportunities i've gotten just by like showing up i mean that's you know art students have asked me so many times like what's your you know secret to trying to get more shows and getting more, you know, I do a lot of murals. How do you get these murals? And it's like, literally show up. That's John Cage has um, uh, a list for his students that was, um, I just love this list. Like I've taught a few classes and I've hung it up before, but that's a major one is just be there. <laughs> and yeah. no, I think true. so many careers in general are launched that way, but certainly art. And also hard work does yeah. pay off to some degree. Like, I can't tell you how many times there's been, you know, oh, we want your art, we want your art, but we want new art and we want it in two months. And all new <laughs> yeah, something no one's seen before. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, like, you know, I'm not going to say no, obviously, but this is a big ask here. And, you know, I got a show in, um, um, in Manhattan and that's exactly what they asked me for is new work. No one's ever seen. Go. Mm -hmm. And the stress of that, the, you know, 
the stress on myself to do the best I can to output something that I want to have people look at is tremendous. That, that's um, up there with when somebody meets a famous comedian and says, tell a joke. Yeah. <laughs> like right now. Exactly. But like a new joke. Come up with a joke and tell me. <laughs> Go. Yeah. 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 I, actually, I actually know somebody for whom that happened on piano. Like she went to it, like she went to an audition with, that pairs like child prod she was my teacher uh she went to an audition that she, that pairs child prodigies with um with orchestras and she played like a shostakovich piano concerto wow. yeah age 13 because that's what you do and <laughs> and and um she said that she had a bad dream everybody has this dream right that that you show up unprepared Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so she had the dream that she showed up unprepared and then she showed up and she played the concerto and then the auditioner said do you know do you know the Schumann concerto and she said yes but what she meant was not yet and so she literally stayed home from school and learned a new piano concerto in like a week mm -hmm. because she showed up unprepared just like her dream said yeah. Yeah. and and um, anyway, the, yeah, but it's kind of like, but I love the way you describe it, Caitlin, of that challenge. And that's what I love about, and even just making that connection, a lot of the events that I've been a part of started with an email or those that we've interviewed yeah, or we are going to interview. A lot of yeah, that exactly. started with you me saying, I really love your work or even with caitlin interviewing right you right now i fanned out with this um uh, medusa piece that you have well we can see it in the back but you actually if you want to if you can speak to it i want to um show it in our link but also great. can you speak to how you got um that job to do the um medusa piece outside the paramount in huntington yeah, I, this is a good example of like a day in the life, but a few weeks in the life of an artist. Um, so it started with um, my good friend owns a gallery. Her name is, her street artist name is Rat Girl, and she owns Muneca Gallery in Patchogue. So everyone should visit there because it's my favorite gallery. And um, so she, um, she was having a show that was, just about the pandemic, like in general, that's the theme of the show. So I personally, I do process things through art, but I don't process things very literally in a way that's maybe visually obvious. Mm -hmm. So I also run this uh, tightrope about how literal I want to be. There's a lot of abstraction in my paintings as well. And how much do I want the viewer to say, this is what this painting is about, and they're gonna walk away thinking that, or you know, is it ambiguous enough that they can get multiple ideas from it? So it's, I always am running that. Um, I don't like the idea of like a cartoonish representation of something just because it's the theme. Mm -hmm. So I always am juggling these ideas and I love painterly marks. So it's important to me that in the end of the day, it's painterly still. So anyway, so she's inviting us. And again, it's like two weeks to the show. I'm racking my brain, you know, what can I put into this pandemic show that has to do with pandemic? You know, I obviously don't have any old work that works for that. So I put all this pressure on myself, of course, that's big, but it also instigates um, a lot more of my 
working process to start off is when I have a challenge, like mm -hmm. an assignment. So I started thinking a lot about like the feeling of being in a pandemic and um, the overwhelmingness. Um, I almost can visualize in this weird way, um, people walking down the street with like a weight on them. Yeah. Um, and that's just how I visualize it. Like everyone has a weight on them now. And of course it's maybe more empathetic towards other humans just thinking about it that way. Like there's an invisible force on every single person that you're meeting right now um, that I also have. So I was really racking my brain. Like how do I, I can't paint a, you know, invisible force on every single person. So how does this <laughs> visually be a thing? Hmm. So finally, um, I love Greek mythology a lot. And I was thinking a lot about like the psychological round, you know, and artists, we have very lofty, I mean, me anyway, <laughs> psychological things come into these paintings, all sorts of uh, places we go that aren't necessarily in the painting at the end. But so I thought of Medusa and I just thought of, I just like how Medusa looks pictorially. I like her story a lot. I actually read her story again to get more of it. Um, and basically Medusa is a beautiful woman um, and she is raped actually and um, she's punished uh, by becoming this snake-like character by another woman yeah. um, out of jealousy and you know, she, it's interesting too, because sometimes it's recorded as she states she was ugly and had these snake heads, but then other times she's still beautiful, but she has these snake heads. So mm -hmm. to really get a visual on it, it's, you know, whatever, it's open to uh, interpretation really. But so I started thinking about that and I was like, you know, it is something that's just thrust upon her. Um, and what she becomes though, is a force that men can't deal with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's an interesting, you know, twist there is yeah. um, she needs to be murdered, <laughs> essentially. Um, and, yeah. but anyway, so by I got fascinated right? with that. She's yeah. murdered by Perseus's, the Perseus. reflection in the shield. Right. And then her head is, and, but she's killed by herself. Like right. it's actually, she's, yeah, she's murdering herself in a way. Right. Right. The reflection. But I just love, I'm so glad you explained that, Caitlin, because we get an in-depth psychological view of how you arrived at that. And right. like, what other, what better, because I'm a Greek myth mm -hmm. buff and fan and all of that, as I think Adam is as well. Um, I would say almost a lot of artists are Greek uh, mm -hmm. devotees, but um, she's wearing trauma literally on her body in the form of the snakes where mm -hmm. i mean I, that's one interpretation right and right. snakes are also usually jealousy symbols and um right. garden of eden the garden of eden yes um and well and is she blaming is she being blamed for her sexual assault by wearing these snakes right. like is she is she becoming the eve fallen right. woman trope um or is she reclaiming her I think there, there's all different readings, right? But that's what I love why you chose Medusa because even now that everyone can see the image in our uh, notes, you know, I urge you all now to look and just take a close look because you literally have almost this spider web 
femme fatale. I read it as the femme fatale image of the spider woman, but the spider web really has become a mask. And I think mm -hmm. that's so interesting to be mm -hmm. on Medusa's face. Right, right. Well, and it's like a contemporary issue that we're all dealing with. And then bringing this sort of historical um, symbolism into it. Um, but then after I produced that painting, there was an opportunity with Huntington Village. Um, and it was to raise awareness of wearing masks. And so that's uh, how I got the mural opportunity. So um, interesting. Yeah, and I was so excited that they were doing that. I was so excited. It was just, you know, we're acknowledging that not everyone's wearing masks. We're talking about why it's important. Um, and there were several different artists involved with different projects and ways of like incorporating the mask. Some people did sculptures, um, just a beautiful event. And, but again, that's another good example of, you know, I had one day to paint it <laughs> across. Um, I think it was probably about, I'm trying to think like 40 feet wide, the window. It's, pretty, it's large. Yeah. Like, so, and yeah, when you had this painting, the painting that we now see in your room, you had that as your prototype to work. I just had that, yeah. And I said, this is what I'd like to paint. Wow. And, and it's funny because I had other ideas that were more, um, what's the word, like, would be probably more accepted to the general public, like more kid-friendly. Um, and arts councils, I've noticed, are, for the most part, a lot more willing to take these risks. And I, I really appreciate them for that. Um, I'm surprised by it too. I also did a mural in Colorado and it's the same thing. Everything, all of their murals are just sort of challenging. You know, they have something going on with them that's, you know, maybe I wouldn't expect an arts council to take that on, but. Mm -hmm. um, well, and also isn't Medusa so gaslit? Like she is the ultimate gaslit victim. Yes, yeah. Right? And a lot of us feel gaslit right now. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it, too. I mean, that's why when I passed your mural, I was so stunned because, right, sometimes that's what I love about interpretations. And it's even as writers. I'm not, once my writing is out there, I'm not in charge of people's interpretations of it. Like, they're going to probably see things that I'm too close to in terms of how I'm writing. But I love it because I thought to myself, Caitlin might, right, we're all now adding depths to your painting and mural and aspects that we all bring with our own reading knowledge. But I just loved, I, when I saw it, I just said, wow, I feel like so many of us now are represented in our scene because those who've been victimized are now taking their voice back. We're like, we've mm -hmm. been telling you about this. Why aren't you listening? Right, exactly. You know, and yeah, so, that piece is amazing. But I also have to mention before we end, I need to mention that I have Caitlin, one of her, well, the Whitman Bicentennial painting that you did. I have it hanging up in my living room. Um, and that makes me so happy. Well, and it's so beautiful because not only, and I'll link it too, um, mm -hmm. but not only is Whitman has a butterfly on one finger. I'm looking at it now just so I can accurately describe it. This is a in the moment art analysis. But um, what I love is it's almost like a ghostly image of Whitman. And what I mean about that is you draw so much attention to Whitman's hat. So he's wearing this <laughs> hat, but like 
Whitman's face is actually has less color than any other part of the painting. And, you know, I'll show Adam just because I don't think, you know, Adam hasn't seen it. But um, so oh, now so I'm good. grabbing my laptop and I'm showing Adam the painting. But right. So I'm just curious, how did you come to how you would represent Whitman's face? Because I find it so interesting. Well, I actually made that poster when I had just started working at the birthplace as the gift wow. shop editor. Um, so, so that I, was like your I, first I, task as an yeah, artist. Well, no, I wasn't asked. <laughs> I offered. Well, good for you. But again, um, that's you taking an opportunity. Right, right. Making an opportunity. Making it, um, yes. But, you know, I said, if I produce this, will you um, accept it? And I had a lot of ideas. Um, I wanted to go more, you know, one of my ideas that I was most attached to that I didn't use was um, Whitman sort of just like his head and a big beard and flowers and grasshoppers and praying mantises. Mm. That was, <laughs> but um, when I was speaking to our director, she was saying, I think you should go a more traditional route just so that it has more appealingness uh, to more people. So we stuck with the uh, classic butterfly on the finger and mm -hmm. I learned a lot. I was learning about Whitman so much. Like every day I was just learning more things about him. Um, but that actual photograph, was taken where Whitman has, um, it seems like a real butterfly on his finger. And that symbolizes his connection to nature, mm -hmm. which is really important for his career and his marketing. But later, oh, I should also say, someone interviewed him and said, you know, is that a real butterfly? What's going on there? And Whitman very much dodged the question and just said, nature is drawn to me. <laughs> so it oh, that's, a Whitman, that's a Whitman <laughs> statement. <laughs> Exactly. But the butterfly was later found by the Library of Congress in one of his books, Press, and it's a Easter card, Easter greeting card that's in the shape of a butterfly with a little wire around it uh, to perch on his finger. Wow. So, right. So you see right there, his marketing skills are through the roof. I mean, who's mm -hmm. thinking about that at that time? So I love that story. And I just thought, you know, I'm learning so much about this person. Um, with so many dimensions that we're able to find historically. He also writes everything down. He keeps that butterfly, even though he's trying mm -hmm. to take everyone out about it. But so I approached that painting and I did it in watercolor, which is unusual for me. I usually paint in acrylic. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking, I know him through black and white photographs, which is a strange way to approach a person. It's like, you want to know what they three-dimensionally look like, but you can't. Mm -hmm. um, you want to understand, you know, just more about what his body is doing. But when you look closely at that picture, Whitman's very frail. And I started noticing that after a while, the way he's sitting and the bulky sweater that he has on mm -hmm. makes him appear bigger. Mm -hmm. But he's, a, you know, aging man there, for sure. Yeah. And he's in so, a wheelchair a lot of the time in his later photos. Right. So we're getting closer to that era of Whitman's life. But to me, it was like, there's a boldness to him that he wants to come across. Mm -hmm. um, he still cares about his marketing so much that he's doing this. Mm -hmm. um, and so through looking through those photographs, I just started to feel like women doesn't want us to like target exactly who he is ever. That's like a big <laughs> part of him is don't define me by anything. Don't label yeah. me. Don't define me. So 
I felt like by having his face more withdrawn um, mm -hmm. colors, yeah. subdued colors, um, but his clothes are a choice, his butterfly is a choice, he wants those things, he chose those things, but he sort of is a very ghostly character that, you know, has a lot to share, but doesn't want to share it in any particular way. So I guess I, that, that way of thinking about him at that time really influenced me a lot. Well, and mm -hmm. if I can just give my interpretation, again, yeah. you don't have to, okay. <laughs> I always say you don't have to agree I, with it, but I also really think what I see is you portrayed with the coloring a certain classical sculpture type of approach where his body it's almost as if he's in stone like i feel like i'm looking at a stone whitman but his thematic element of nature like you said the butterfly is rainbow color a rainbow color and you have so much attention to how it's not necessarily so important to represent every detail of his face. What's more important is where his eyes are drawn and they're drawn to the butterfly. And I think you do such a good job of showing the vibrant nature with Whitman. And it's almost, you really have this type of Greco-Roman sculpture atmosphere to how he's being preserved in time. And I think, I mean, it works so well, Caitlin. And, um, and you have that quote, what is it that the powerful, uh, the powerful play goes on, but you may contribute a verse. Yeah. Like, again, that the agency is in you, the viewer, or you, the butterfly. <laughs> like, you're taking agency away from his actual physique. And, I mean, it's so well done. Um, Thank you. And I love looking at it because it's just such an interesting way of representing him. Because I think you're right. When you look at his black and white photographs, you start to especially the later photographs, um, it can seem so defeated. Like he looks like he's, the energy's not there, but the way you show it is, you know, his energy is coming from within and from what's being drawn to him. Um, so yeah. Right. Love it. And also, I'll just add in that, I looked at his death mask a lot. <laughs> so I think that that absolutely had an influence. Um, which I find so interesting. They didn't just make a mask of Whitman. They actually, you know, his whole head is there. It's a sculpture really, but it's from um, his face. And I just think about Whitman made sure they made a death mask of him. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they would have anyway, but he went there and said like, this is what we're going to do when I die. Yep. This is, you know, um, and that's certainly there. And if you look at the death mask, his beard, um, I read that they, they use animal fat uh, to coat the face and the beard to uh, make sure the plaster didn't seep into everything. So that he looks so much older. I've never seen a photo where he looks really like that small and frail. Mm. Um, and also when we show pictures of Whitman, we pick pictures where he's younger and where he's, you know, uh, got his hand on his head. <laughs> yeah. And he's a carpenter. He's dressed as a carpenter. Um, to appeal to, you know, common working people, because that's, you know, his audience is chosen, uh, unusual audience. So to see him as an older man like that is really, again, that hero idea would never allow for that. Mm -hmm. But yet, it's there. 
Well, and he becomes America's Homer. Right, right. Or Socrates, and that's what he wanted. Right. Um, he wanted to be Homer. He wanted to be that type of, well, again, and I think this is where Whitman and the myth of who he is, he was so strategic about it though. And I'm so glad, like the way you phrase it is so helpful, Caitlin, that his marketing strategies and even when he gets, he gets funds when he's alive for his monument to be built. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> think about that kind of ego, right? It is an ego project Absolutely. Um, to say, and I want this grandiose monument and mm -hmm. it does get built. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so interesting to see in Camden because of it's this type of rectangular monument. Um, yeah, it costs four thousand dollars, which yeah, is that's not nothing. Then, eighteen ninety two. Yeah, yeah. And who else has a grandiose monument built? Maybe my argument is probably based off of Whitman. Is Oscar Wilde in mm -hmm. Par Lachaise, <laughs> and um, he has an actual Egyptian Sphinx monument. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I gotta check that out. Yeah, it's very interesting. Wow. Um, but yeah, there's such a draw. Um, and I think there's, what I, I give credit so much to Whitman for his planning for the future. He really knew, he was always thinking about his literary inheritance. And I mean, I think there's a reason why, because there is another writer's birthplace on Long Island, but we usually don't talk about it because the writer's usually not, um, I want to say is lesser known, but was not lesser known in the 19th century, but it's William Cullen Bryant. Mm -hmm. He has a birthplace in, um, it's not a birthplace, sorry. It's his home that he lived in. Um, don't want to confuse birthplaces, um, mm -hmm. but his home is in Roslyn. Harbor. Um, but I talk to people from Long Island and they're like, who is William Colin Bryant? And I'm like, well, he didn't have the same kind of marketing machinery. Right. He didn't make it in other words. No. no. Um, but yeah, this is so fascinating. I just love how we like jumped from all these art lessons to talking about <laughs> Whitman's themes. And I think it just demonstrates what imaginative creativity you're bringing to your position, Caitlin, because these are all the different kinds of discourses you work with. Um, I almost think that that's the next, um, that's the next job for a place like the Whitman birthplace is like how, um, how to sell yourself as an artist based on mm. the guy who is kind of the emperor of that in the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, like that. I would attend, I would attend that class, albeit in my pajamas. Yeah. Well, and I think the Whitman Birthplace really is an art collective. Like yeah. it brings poets together, it brings writers and scholars, and it's a house. It's a it like the birthplace. Right. Yes, it's a physical home, but I mean, it's a house, kind of in the way that, um, you know, fashion designers have homes. Like they'll call it yeah. the House of Dior, oh, yeah. or yeah, or, like the Dali House. Yes. So in a way, that I really like feel, draws other people to exactly, it. and I really feel like that's what the Whitman birthplace is doing, and it's so ingenious. That's great. And there we go. That's the marketing strategy. Is, well, it makes it one of the things that people do is they is like 
someone like someone like um, Ginsburg or like I guess even even a lesser known poet like Lynn Hajinian would like sort of position themselves as a Whitman for our times, mm. right? Mm. I mean, Ginsburg with Ginsburg, it's very obvious because of the like sexuality and the facial hair and all the other like all the outward markers. Yeah. Of, uh, but but it's, I mean. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the difference between making it as an artist and not making it as an artist is having a cool beard and a cool fedora or some, some other kind of like uh, simple uh, metonymy. Some, some like, uh, like, like the way Churchill had his cigars and stuff like, like that. Like you think of a, a common object and you think of this person. Mm. It, well, well, I think it's also if they're part of a collective group, yeah, that's you start true. to learn... Like, That's there's true. a reason why Virginia Woolf being part of the Bloomsbury group is powerful or mm-hmm. um, why you have the pre-Raphaelites, right? Right. And I think, um, I mean, on, on, on some scaled down uh, version of that, that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do, right? That's what we're trying yeah, to do with our, with our writing group is we, is we invite people in and we, we try to support each other and stuff like that. And it's, it started in a way because we needed the support, right? I mean, the pandemic is going on. It's hard to, to sit down and do your X number of minutes or hours of writing a day. And, and I think even before the pandemic, I mean, I don't know how many times both of you have these kinds of thought intervening moments where it's like, well, before the pandemic, the pre-pandemic, time i think how much i was just running around and i'm like whoa what was i doing i felt i think i was very distracted and how do you mean also, running around like running around to events or that i wouldn't be having very in-depth conversations with people it was almost like these very surface level like mm-hmm. oh yeah i'm doing this right now talk to you later like i'm sure because Speaking we had of this butterflies yeah yeah yeah, and I was I'm, I'm very extroverted, but it's also not only that. I think right now we're trying to figure out that oh, the pre-pandemic moment, we were feeling really isolated as artists. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a healthy experience. Yeah. Like it was so competitive. And I mean, it's still competitive, but I think like you're saying Adam and Caitlin, you talk about the working with art councils. Um that is the future. Like that is what's needed right now. Is I feel we need much to more be... connected. Yeah, I do too. To I feel like I'm actually academics. Of... Yes, yes. And, and I did before the, world, the pandemic. Yeah, and we're actually having conversations with people globally, which yeah, yeah. is not happening. And we weren't well, all in the same room together. Like, right. and what's so interesting is now that we're fully virtual, we are in the same room in a right. weird way. Um, right. And the funny thing is that all those people, like a lot of those people I had considered reaching out to mm-hmm. half a dozen times and I just didn't. Like some of the people we've had on our podcast were people that I um, I had considered reaching out to. And I, but then you, you develop, you, you start, you, I don't know, I, I guess I started doing this project and, and as I built confidence and as we got momentum, all of the reasons not to do that, you just develop a bit of the fuck it <laughs> and, and, and roll and roll past those, those misgivings. And suddenly you're having a great conversation with someone you haven't talked to in years um, with the promise of another on the horizon. 
Yeah, or when I started to dig in and learn that, Caitlin, you have so many layers to your creativity. That sounds like a felony. I'm just going to... I'm so glad you ended, ended the sentence the way you ended it because no, with creativity, I, I'm very clear. I was getting uncomfortable. No, no. Well, <laughs> oh, Adam, you've got um, you've got a lot of heart, Caitlin. Is what he's trying to say. Okay. It can be hard, like. But do you feel the same way, Caitlin, about the birthplace <laughs> in terms of that it is a collective? It's a place that brings together not only lovers of Whitman, but lovers of art at the end of Absolutely. the day. Absolutely, yes. Um, but like I was saying, it can also be an intimidating place. Mm -hmm. But something about having these events be virtual has absolutely helped us uh, get past that barrier. Mm -hmm. So if you have a friend or someone in your family who says, oh, I don't want to go to, you know, a poetry reading I don't know about that or how I could interact with people around me there or you know yeah. um, anything about the atmosphere then if it's online mm -hmm. it's like I can show up and turn off my camera and say muted and see what I think of this yeah it's or like, I can even it. wait until the YouTube video and <laughs> go down my rabbit hole and see what happened at the birthplace right, right. and that's like so many things right now there's even um mm -hmm classes like I've just like tuned into on YouTube and I'm like oh it wasn't as intimidating as I thought that would be but you're right there is almost a when you don't have that need to be in person mm -hmm. I mean my ideal is this hybrid method like you can choose to be in person you can choose to be virtual but you're right there the barrier starts to really disappear and if people have the technology right I mean I will say it's important if you have a laptop or Wi-Fi, um, like there is that barrier. Um, but I'm sure, I know I am, I've used so much of the Whitman Birthplace YouTube videos in my own course. Um, and it's so exciting that you can continue to return to that. And I'm working with Caitlin in partnership that we can deliver these videos to high schoolers, right? And that wouldn't have happened before. Like the high school, right? What high school is going to try to coordinate multiple English classes to try to attend an event that they can't hold space for? Exactly. Right? It's just, but now you can hold space virtually. Right. I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of, yeah, like this is a perfect example of like, there are positive things, mm -hmm. you know, that are growing out of this difficult time. Um, I notice during our events, sometimes people get really down on like, oh, the pandemic, we're stuck at home. And I'm like, yeah, but you live in another state and you're yes. here. Like, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't lose perspective. And like, you know, we have to focus on the positive here too. I think yes. technology is gonna make major leaps and bounds. It already has, but will continue to after yeah. this. Um, yeah. And building this bridge, I think, right, the navigating right now and the, I'm sure, you know, I don't, when it go on too long um, with this, but I think that you're probably thinking right now, Caitlin, too, of this transition stage of a lot of us thinking, okay, well, what does it mean to now be hybrid? Or thinking, no, no, we can't lose the virtual space. Like I keep thinking about this, no, don't take away these classes. Like, no, don't, because this started to happen to me. Um, I'm a huge yoga fan for those who listen and don't know that. 
But I got so sad when studios started to stop their virtual classes. And I'm like, no, like, I wanted to support you, but I can't anymore. I have to now find a virtual studio. And that was what I ended up doing. But right, I'm sure you're, the wheels are turning in your head and you're saying to yourself, we can't stop a virtual component. Absolutely not. I mean, to me, it's like hybrid is the goal, the next goal. How does that look? Is it a different question? Mm-hmm. I, I always have a visual in my head of like me typing out a laptop that's towards a speaker who's, you know, presenting their poetry. And then I'm running back and forth. Like, is their microphone working? Is our microphone, you know, like just going, you know, a little bit crazy. Luckily we do have a lot of volunteers. I know they'll pitch in, they'll yeah. do the work. They're so amazing. The, time, the volunteers. Yeah. I know. I'm calling calling them out. They're really great. I know. We're so lucky. But at the same time, it's like, you know, we can't plan. Everyone's in this situation. You can't plan that Mm -hmm. far ahead. Or like, what will it look like? Could we have, you know, 15 people in the room for a little while and everything else is virtual? You know, it's going to be a lot of trial and error, but that's how we started this thing. And that's how it's going to keep having to go. Can you have virtual maybe speakers who rotate in person, like meaning sometimes they're virtual and sometimes they're in person, right? Or, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. so many, right? It's like a chemistry experiment. There's so many molecules you could try to play around with for right. formulas. Yeah. Like, it, it's a very, it's a very SAT type of question. Like you have X, Y, you have X and Y options. How do you create this? Mm-hmm. How many possibilities and outcomes you could have? And right. th- the question is, it's endless because you're you're creating it. There's multitudes. There are multitudes. <laughs> there you go. I like that. I love that. That's a good place to end. But oh, thank goodness. you so much, Caitlin. I feel just yeah. every time I talk with you, your passion for poetry, art, um, well, poetry is art, but, you know, painting, um, Uh, murals, um, all the different mediums you work with, it all shines through and just how creative you are is, it speaks to every project you've done. And I'm so excited to see what you do in the future. And, you know, from week to week, because it's always changing, the new (laughs) event that you're doing. Um, And I'm very lucky to get to collaborate with you. So thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you, Andrew. It's been amazing collaborating with you too. And you're you're in the same position that I was saying too. Like you're just jumping in, you're taking on these um, really interesting tours and <laughs> figuring out how they'll work and if there'll be internet connection and things yeah. like that. Or if the phone will burn out because the sun was too hot. Yeah. That was just <laughs> in the summer. Right, I remember that. <laughs> but it's been amazing talking to you both. I love the format of this. Like it's just really a conversation and we're just hanging out. I remember I was asking for questions beforehand. And you're like, no, it's gonna be more conversational. And that's absolutely what it is. It's like, like just a hang out, whatever comes up, topic to topic. Yeah. Love it. It's a Saturday afternoon. Yes. That's our <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Um um Adam, do you have any words? I no, I'm really glad yes. Uh, I, I always I always start with no, and I mean yes. Um, I'm really glad to to meet you. Obviously, I met you through Andrew, and it's been really interesting talking to you about what works, what doesn't, what um, what you have been able to do with the Whitman birthplace and elsewhere. I'm glad that we got to talk about all the other stuff because that Medusa has been looking over your shoulder 
which I guess is what she does in the myth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the whole the whole conversation, and 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 I'm glad that we. I mean, we had so much to talk about, and I'm glad that we got to talk about the paintings as well. Um, and bring in a Whitman poem. Which bring in a Whitman poem. Yeah. Is always exciting. Um, now this was wonderful. Thank you, Caitlin. Um, and to our listeners, this is our, for season two, we've really focused a lot on artists, musicians, composers. So thank you for being part of our artist theme. Yeah. And make sure you make sure you go, go to these things. Uh, you guys have no excuse. You don't have to leave your couch and you don't have to be a snob to attend Caitlin's events. You've, you've heard her for the last however long you, 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 you know that, that she's working on good stuff. Yes, check out the YouTube channel, subscribe. Okay, I'll, I'll start doing the plugging for you, Caitlin. But yeah, subscribe <laughs> to the Whitman Birthplace YouTube channel. Um, the Facebook group is essential because you're Caitlin's always sharing the events that are happening um, and trying to find where's Whitman, all the, you know all the activities and one of and one of the things that i that i can't emphasize enough is that we like part of the reason why we bring people like caitlin onto our podcast and why we uh why we go into conversation with with you is that we want we want people to be able to look at your facebook page and say oh that's how an institution can survive the pandemic Mm -hmm. and the same thing with your youtube page and the same thing with any other any of the lectures that you've that you've had or any of the poetry readings we want people to look at it and be inspired to make some money for themselves so that they can keep living as artists as scholars as whatever as whatever they they have a mind to do during this increasingly frustrating time yeah so thank you for that thank you for for teaching us and we will be including links to all of all of your stuff so that people can get a sense. Yes. And, that's that. and see all of your artwork. Yeah. So yeah. thank you, Caitlin. Thank you both so much. And yeah, use our Facebook or all of our social media and YouTube as like a cheat sheet if needed for everyone. Um, yeah. A lot of good stuff there. Yeah. Oh, and everyone listening, because I, I don't plug this enough. Actually, I don't think we've ever plugged this, Adam, but since this is, you're getting this via podcast, please feel free to create your own podcast. Um, and if you ever want tips, Adam and I always respond to anyone who reaches out to us. I will help you get started. Don't ask us. We have no idea what we're doing. No, no. I'll, I will help them. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I'll help them. I'll help them for a fee. No, no. I'm kidding. Absolutely. About no, no. We'll, we'll offer what, what, what guidance we can. And of course, join our writing group. Yes, join our writing group, and we'd love to, we're continuing more time slots to fit people's schedules, and starting to have more than 15 people, so. It's pretty amazing. The group is growing, and um, yeah, but feel free, if you start to create your own podcast, we've had someone in the group do that, share it with us, and we'll plug your podcast. Yeah, Andrew needs something to listen to while he's doing his yoga. (laughs) (laughs) yes yes well and even for our writing group sometimes we'll we'll put on people's podcasts exactly Um, so yeah thank you everyone have a take care stay safe and healthy out there and have a good week yes
Thank you. 